Um, okay, so a couple things. One, I definitely want to draw your attention to kind of one of the most important things that we do as a church, period. And, uh, and that is when people decide that they're going to give their lives to Christ. And uh, we just want to let you know that Zeke Swedok, right over here on the edge, right there in the polo, gray polo shirt, was baptized on Friday uh, up at camp. So we're very excited about that. It is, it is an awesome thing. Camp is a great place to do it. Memories. I'm sure there's lots of pictures, uh, and, but we can, we can find those. It's a wonderful experience. It's one of the things that just everything we do as a church kind of like we want to lead to these kinds of moments where people make those sorts of decisions. So we're so happy uh, for that. And then, of course, you know, we already mentioned some of the new families that have been joining our church family. And I just, I don't know, I just... I kind of like, I just get so excited. Every time I talk to somebody and I'm like, hey, and I kind of get meek, you know, I'm not a very good salesman. I'm like, have you ever considered, you know, maybe being a member and people will be like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, yes. You know, it feels like, you know, like every time when you were in high school and you asked a girl out and they, they said yes, you're just like, ah, yeah, oh, they, they like me. But I know it's more than that. I know it's about finding a body, a church family that we can all be part of. So we're so grateful for the Rothschild and the Hanson families and a handful of others. In fact, can I tell you this real quick? We have somebody who's been coming for years and they're like, they, uh, they said, I'm going to be a member of this family. And we're like, we thought you already were. We didn't know. That's great. So we've got people uh, joining all the time in all kinds of ways. Um, all right. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. I don't know. Anybody else ever uh, struggle with anything like that? You ever struggle with telling yourself no? You ever struggle trying to do the right thing? You ever, ever struggle with like having a thought, but you don't want to think it? Then your, your brain is telling you, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then you say it anyway, and you're just like, ah, what is going on? Like a city without, whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Um, a few years ago... Uh, probably five, six years ago, time starts flying when you get older, uh, I came across this inspirational statement that I was really like compelled by. It was one of those statements that you read and I don't know, it's probably some inspirational, motivational speaker said it, but I was like, oh, it makes me want to go out and accomplish things. And the statement was this, it, it was um, a year from now, you'll wish you had started today. A year from now, you'll wish you had started today. And I was, I was reading that, and it actually took me a minute because I didn't quite follow the grammar. But then once I got it, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. If, I, if, if Patrick, if 12 months ago Patrick had really gotten on the ball and maybe started putting away some money for a vacation, then present Patrick could really go on an awesome vacation. That would be awesome. If 12 months ago Patrick had decided he's going to buckle down and he's going to learn Spanish, then today Patrick could figure out what's going on when he goes down on the mission trip and people are talking in Spanish. If 12 months ago Patrick had decided that he was going to run a marathon, then today Patrick could be like, I ran a marathon. That would be so awesome. And I got so excited and I was like, what is wrong with Patrick? Patrick, why can't he get his act together? What is, why didn't he figure it out 12 months ago that so today Patrick could really be celebrating something great? A year from now, you'll wish you had started. And then it started making me think like, well, what, what are the things that I could do 12 months from now? I mean, all the possibilities and it could just be a variety of things. It could be, you know, some project that you have at home that you've been meaning to do and you haven't done or losing weight or gaining weight. I don't know, maybe that's your problem. But think about the things that you, you could start and 12 months from now, you'd be like, I've, I've, I've finished. And I got so excited thinking about that, that I got a little bit of jolt of joy for the things that I had not even started to do. The problem is, <laughs> this is, 
I came across this quote, I don't know, five, six years ago, and uh, I really did think about maybe starting some of those things, but I never actually did it. And I came across this other less inspirational quote that goes like this, inspiration alone won't get you very far. I got inspired, but I just didn't get very far. And maybe some of you have trophies to your lack of accomplishment. Anybody else have trophies to their inability to accomplish something in their house? Yeah, maybe you have a book that has been unopened and it says, you know, 12 easy steps to learn Spanish and you've just never cracked that thing open and there it is sitting on your shelf and someday maybe you have expensive brand new running shoes because you got to get the best otherwise what are you even doing and then they became your expensive brand new sitting on the couch shoes and then your expensive not so brand new mowing the lawn shoes and then you still haven't taken up running or maybe anybody in the room have aspirational pants do you know what i mean yeah, I do. Someday I'm going to fit in those. Well, why don't you get rid of them? Yeah, that's someday. They're out of style now, but they'll come back. That's the way fashion works. It'll come back 20 years from now. Aspirational pants. Someday I will be skinny enough to fit back into those. It's, it's a goal. Now, the, the, the reality is, is we have a lot of excuses, life, you know, all kinds of things have come up. But there's usually only one reason we don't do those things. There's only one reason. Now, personally, I don't like going, going, uh, coming up on stage and say, hey, you should go listen to last week's sermon. It was really good. I don't like doing that because I feel like it's self-promoting, but you should go listen to last week's sermon because maybe it'll give you context. I'm not going to tell you it was really good, but it'll give you context for what we're talking about today because we started a new series called Rule Your Life, and it's based on this premise, the idea that unless you make decisions to determine what your life will look like, life will make decisions to determine what your life will look like. It will be your employer, or it will be your health, or it will be your extended family, or it will be somebody else that comes in and says, this is what you're going to do with your life because you haven't created the systems and the structure and the habits to decide what your life will truly be. You either rule your life or your life rules you. And that's the premise we've been talking about. It comes from this ancient idea called a rule of life, that early Christians built into their life because they realized all those aspirational goals, all those noble desires, all those wonderful ideas will never actually grow and thrive unless we have built around them the architecture and the structure and the framework of routines and habits that allow those things to, go, to, to grow and thrive. And I told you last week, remember the word rule comes from the same Latin word as the word trellis. And I know a few people don't know what a trellis is. Uh, I didn't know either, but I went out and bought one at Home Depot. This is a, this is a trellis. I would have bought one last week, can I tell you a true story? But they, they were sold out of the cheap ones, and I didn't want to buy an expensive one for you guys. You're not worth that much, so I waited until this week when they had the cheap ones. So you get the cheap trellis, but this is a trellis. And what, what, what you do is you plant vines, roses, ivies, cucumbers, as we learned last week. By the way, I didn't know that picture I took of our garden was about cucumbers. And then the people who grew the cucumbers came in and they were giving cucumbers away. It was just like this really cool, like kind of, uh, what do you call it? Serendipitous moment. But anyway, here's the structure. Now, the, this, is, this is crucially important because sometimes can, Christians get this confused. We think that the really valuable, most important thing in the world is the structure. It's not. But it's the, it's the vine, it's the flowers, it's the plant that grow on that structure. But that structure is vital and necessary in order to develop and create a thriving, healthy life. You have to have that architecture built in. You have seen that in your kids. When your kids don't get a nap, what happens to them? 
Do they become wonderful, loving, well-behaved children? Or do they become little teeny tiny, like, what is wrong with this person? Oh, they need the reset button. Same with you, though. Have you ever gotten tired? And then you're just like not yourself? You're hungry or you're angry? That it's because we sometimes occasionally lack that structure to allow ourselves to, to grow and develop. And while I'm recapping, um, the, the, we talked about Daniel and we talked about uh, how he had created a structure in his life that even though the circumstances of his world had changed, that he did not change his habits, even under the threat of death. This is Daniel chapter 6, because those were so valuable to the flowering and the growth of his spiritual life. Jesus, on the last day of his life, continued his habits. Can you think of a habit that you have that you would do on the last day of your life because it is so valuable, it is so good, that you would need to do it even though you only have 24 hours to live? So the idea of the trellis isn't questions like, it's not like spiritual life questions that we've all struggled with. It's not questions like, will I pray? That's not, that's not the question of the trellis. The question of the trellis is, how will I incorporate prayer into my life? The question of the trellis isn't like, will I read scripture? The question of the trellis is, how will I read scripture? What, am I, what is the framework that is going to allow that value to grow and thrive? The question isn't, will I be generous? Will I serve others? The question is, how will I do those things? Let me give you a real simple example, not because I've got this figured out, but because I think it's uh, relatable. Maybe, maybe a value that you have that you want to build and you want to grow is, is, is family connections. You want, you want your family to be close with one another, with you and with one another. And so you think like, what, what's the trellis that I can build in order to grow that value in my life and my family's life? So maybe the family connection. So maybe one means of doing that, you think, is family dinner which is a tradition that has often gone by the wayside in our society. So a family dinner, you think, I want my family, maybe every day, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, I don't know, maybe every Sunday, to have this opportunity to all gather around the table. Well, what is the trellis that you need to build in order to allow that value to thrive? Well, you might have to say no to overtime or to the, the demands of work that come creeping in on that time. You might have to do that. You might have to say no to kids' sports practices that just have zero regard for your life and your schedule and just want to consume everything. You might have to say no to those things in order to build the trellis around that value. Or, and fortunately, I, I, every, about once a week, I try to make dinner for our family it's not a noble thing, I know. Some of you husbands are like, whatever, and some of you wives are once a week, every day. But I've heard from some people who provide the meals for their family that it is exhausting to try to decide what their family is going to eat every day. It's exhausting to come up with something. And then mom, traditionally, makes the meal and spends, I don't know, goes to the store, buys all the stuff, cooks it, prepares it, brings it to the table, and then gathers the kids around. The kids are on their phone. Put away your phone. we got to guard this moment. Put away your books, whatever it is that that kid has, happens to do. And then a kid, or maybe sometimes a spouse, says something like, broccoli. Blech. And the mom, what does that do to the mom? Like, oh, are you kidding me? I have been working so hard to build this moment so that we could have family togetherness. And then the, you know, the person cooking just kind of like loses it because it's hard. It's hard, to, it's hard to do these things. The trellis is about aligning our most noble goals and desires with our habits. Our habits and our hearts. That's what the trellis is about. It's about bringing those two things together. And this is the truth, church. It is hard. 
It is hard. You think of any noble goal that goes against the stream of our culture, and it is a hard thing to do. I mean, something simple, like, like many of you read Scripture every day. Some of you aspirationally want to read Scripture every day, and it just doesn't happen. You know, you think about doing it, but then you pull out your phone, and it's easy to get on social media, or it's easy to see a work email because you're reading the Bible on your phone, and then just before you know it, the day's kind of gotten away from you. But a lot of us want to wake up every day and kind of start our day with the perspective that God would provide through Scripture. Well, what do you have to do? I can't read the Bible if my family is awake. I can't do it. Because even though I'm sitting there reading, they just have no regard for that, like, personal private moment. And so they want to interact, and I want to interact with my family. So i got to set my alarm earlier than they get up in order to do that. And in order to get up earlier, i got to not hit snooze a bunch of times. And in order to not hit snooze a bunch of times, i got to go to bed earlier. And in order to go to bed earlier, I can't watch men synchronized diving during the Olympics. I've got to go to bed and turn that off. Whatever it is, whatever. I don't know what sport it is, but I get into it if it's in the Olympics. Or Netflix or anything else. I've got to, say, I've got to tell myself no about 12 times to tell myself yes to this one goal. And it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be a disciple. It's hard to follow Jesus. That is not a message that our even modern religious culture is telling us today. It's hard. You know, when people saw the life of Jesus and were inspired by him and they came rushing up to him saying, teach me, teach me, teach me. Let me follow you so I can learn your ways, Jesus. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, yes, Join my seminar and I'll teach you the three easy secrets in order to be my disciple. No, consistently he said, listen, if you're serious about this, it is a hard thing to do. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man is nowhere to lay his head. Is that the kind of life that you want? In in Luke chapter 9 verse 23, he says, you've got to, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. That goes against every single movie Disney has put out in the last 80 years. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, this instrument of self-denial and death, and then you have to dedicate your life to following me. That is not an easy proposition. How do we do these things that are so difficult? This uh, amazing author, G.K. Chesterton, has written a bunch. He wrote this in a book called Uh, orthodoxy, he said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's that it's been found difficult and left untried. It's one of my favorite quotes. People are like, wake up early, read my Bible, pray, dedicate my life to something, be generous, serve others. I don't love my neighbor. I don't think I can do that. I'm just going to follow my dreams, follow my heart, follow my muse. That's what I'm going to do with my life and then see where it gets them. How do we do these things that are so hard? And, and, and I actually think real, deep, all-in, full-contact discipleship, even within churches, is often kind of rare. When you see someone who is just like full throttle, who is all-in, who is sold out, it's still a relatively rare thing. And I think it's a rare thing because it is so hard. It is so hard. And we live in a culture that does not cater to the difficult. It caters to the easy. So how do we do that? What do we do? How do we, how do we pursue this life that God has promised will be fulfilling, will be valuable, will be life-giving, a life that we will want when it is a difficult thing? How do we do that? Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Many of you grew up in an era where you didn't lock your doors ever. And in fact, I'm just curious, show of hands, how many of you when you were a kid or younger, uh, don't tell us now because we know where you live in the directory, but if you did back in the day, how many of you didn't lock your doors, just generally speaking? 
Yeah, a few people. Like, in fact, there are some people who didn't lock their doors unless they were going on, like, vacation, right? That was the only time they ever locked them. You just, when, when it came time to go to bed, you just went to bed. Now we have a whole routine. We check the windows. We check the doors. We make sure the alarm's on. I mean, the whole nine yards. And then, have you ever done this where you get into bed, you get all snuggly, you lay there, you're ready to fall asleep, and then there's just this little voice says, hey, are you sure you locked the patio door? Yeah, I got it. I got it. No, no, no. Are you positive? Do you remember latching the... Yes, I remember. Maybe I don't. Oh, no. No, I'm sure I did. And you try to tell yourself it's okay and lay there. And what happens eventually in a couple minutes, you got to get up anyway and double check. Some of you have woken up in the night to do that. Imagine if, if you, this was your habit or your husband or wife or children, which children do this well. Imagine if, if, oh, it's time to go to bed. And you walked around the house and you just opened the doors wide, opened the patio door wide, and then you went to bed. That's exactly what this verse is talking about. Proverbs chapter 25, in our modern way of thinking, it would be like a home whose doors and windows are all left open, all wide open as a person who lacks self-control. That's how we would view something like this. There's a misspelled word in there in case you detail people. Oh, I got your attention. Some people were like, I want to see it. I actually didn't see it. Steve pointed it out to me after the first service. (laughs) I, I didn't want you to be distracted. Like a home whose doors are wide open is a person who lacks self-control. Let's explore this just for for a moment, because this is incredibly important. This is foundational to your relationship with God, and it's an element that we often neglect. There has been um, an explosion of scientific, secular scientific research around this idea. Here's just a little sampling of books that have been generated in the last, you know, five years or so around the idea of willpower, self-control, self-discipline. Some of you have read these books. There's a lot of helpful insights. But the questions have to do with, like, what is going on with people? Like, why, why do some people seem to have more self-control, like they can wake up early and go exercise and other people cannot. But then those people who cannot wake up early and exercise can really manage their savings account and those people who can wake up early and exercise cannot. Like why, why is it that some people can manage life in certain areas but not in others? Like why, what's going on? What's going on in the, 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 the neurology of people's brains? How do you develop it? Can, is self-control like a muscle? Is willpower like a muscle that can be developed and grown and changed and, 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 and strengthened? One uh, conclusion drawn out of, in fact, the Power of Habit book by Charles Duhigg, which is one I've read recently uh, in preparation for what we're doing, is he makes, the, he makes the, the point, and it's also borne out in this other one called The Marshmallow Test, that the single most important factor determining a child's future success is not IQ or intelligence or how they, what kind of grades they get. It's not that. It is, it is not their social status. It is not the school they went to. It is not how many sports they lettered in. It's none of those things. The most critical factor in determining a, future, a child's future success, this is a 40-year study, was whether or not they could delay gratification. That's the marshmallow test you've probably heard of. Maybe that's oversimplifying it a little bit, but then what do parents spend all their time and attention on? Test scores, test scores, test scores, test scores. What do they not spend their time and attention on? Self-discipline, self-control, willpower. And they have to exercise that 
for their kids. And you know, we're, we're not interested necessarily in just simply uh, secular conclusions, but I was kind of fascinated by this, this uh, contradiction because here's all this study. These are, these are universities like Duke and Harvard, and these are like smart people writing these books about how self-control and willpower and self-discipline is just vitally important. In fact, Charles Duhigg says willpower uh, is this, it, because it's the thing that can, that can indicate future success, it is important that people learn to deny themselves. And I was like, wow, that really sounds like something else I've read that some researcher must have done thousands of years ago and written about in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Deny yourself. But it's weird because in our culture, we're sending mixed messages because on this, on one hand, if you read the science, if you read the research, if you follow the science, it's, you know, hey, you got to deny yourself. You got to delay gratification. You got to exercise willpower. But then on the other hand, so much of our popular culture is saying, just follow your heart, indulge yourself. If you want it, do it. If you like it, chase after it. And it's like this contradiction, this mixed message that our culture is, is trying to figure out. And it's no wonder people are kind of confused about what to do. Do I follow my desire or do I not? How do I manage this? How do I balance? this. Anyway, I've read a lot of non-religious definitions of self-control, and it's probably going to come as a shock that my favorite definition of self-control is from the Bible. <laughs> I know, shocking, right, for a Sunday morning at a church service that I, that I would like something from the Bible more than all these other books. My favorite definition is from the Bible, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. I know all of you just love learning about Hebrew and Hebrew words, but this is, this is important. The word self-control in English is actually an entire Hebrew phrase that just brings this idea to life. Self-control seems a little clinical, it seems a little sterile, but the Hebrew phrase that, that we translate self-control is this, one who rules over their own spirit. One who rules over their own spirit. It's kind of interesting. The implication of that definition is that there is this conflict, this internal conflict inside you that you have to manage, that you have to rule over, that you have to exercise authority over this internal conflict. Because it seems like there are two people inside you. In fact, can I get some volunteers? Can I get uh, Matthew and Andrew, my former youth group members? Can you guys come up here? Come on up. I'm not going to make you guys do anything crazy. I just, it would just be helpful to have people have something to look at besides me. So we got Matthew. Here, stand right here. We're on camera, so, you know, you look good. This is going to be around forever. Okay. All right. So I, I love both these guys, but I'm going to use one of them as a positive example and one of them as a negative example. This isn't necessarily indicative of their character at all. It just happens to be the way it goes. So Let's say you have a, uh, a, like, a noble voice in your head. <laughs> An, a, a voice that says, you know what, you need to think about your future. You need to think about the things that truly matter to you. You need to think about that city that those walls are broken down. You need to rebuild those walls and protect it. So, so this voice, when, when you go out to eat, this is the voice that you sit down and the server says, hey, would you like, what would you like as a side? Would you like a side salad, french fries? This voice says, Side salad, side salad. You know, you really should have a side salad. Remember last time you went to the doctor and he said, do not eat another French fry or your heart will pop? Don't do that. <laughs> voice says side salad. You know, this voice says, hey, remember last time you put off all those, that work, that homework, that project, that whatever, you put all that work till the very last minute. You know, 
you know you have that deadline. Why don't you get it done early? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't you feel good about that? That's this voice that's saying that. That's Andrew talking to you. And he's saying, hey, just, you know, do the right thing. Think about your future. Think about what matters, you know. And this is the voice that says, hey, I know you had that thought, but don't say that to your spouse. Don't say it because it won't help. She already knows. (laughs) He or she already knows. Just don't say it. It won't make anything better. It's just going to end an argument. Please don't say it. This is the voice that's telling you to do all those things. It's a very noble, thoughtful voice in your head, and it's thinking about your long-term future. Now, the truth of the matter is, this is how it all works for all of you. This voice is quiet. It's quiet. It just reminds you, hey, you know, don't eat the, don't eat the French fries. And this voice takes a minute to gather its thoughts. It, it doesn't speak too quickly. It just takes a minute to kind of think through, and just, it just takes a minute. That's, that's this noble voice. There's another voice in your head, too. And, and this voice, this voice is brash and loud and speaks quickly. And in fact, this voice gets louder when you're tired and when you're hungry and when you're lonely and you're angry. This voice really starts to yell. This voice says, hey, that's been bugging you. You let your spouse know that's been bugging you. You tell them. You, you do it right now. You say it. Don't think about it. Say it. That's what this voice is telling you. This voice is saying, French fries are so good. Who cares? This voice does not care what the doctor told you. This voice says, hit the snooze button. This voice is telling you that the very first thing that you should do with your day is to go back to sleep. That's what this voice is telling you to do. That's this voice. It's not got your best interests in mind. This voice's frontal lobes have not fully developed, and it cannot think about the future. It cannot think about what's coming. It cannot think about what life has in store for you. It just can't, it can't wrap its mind around that. And this voice is fast, and it's, and it's loud, and it's and this voice. Now, listen, this is really important. This voice is not always wrong. (laughs) Sometimes you should eat the piece of cake. Sometimes you should. Sometimes God has given you something to enjoy and you should enjoy it. Sometimes you should take a nap. This voice is not always wrong, but when he is right, he is right for the wrong reasons. And this voice, when he is right, will always be affirmed by this voice. They will always say, you know what, it is okay to take a nap. You were up kind of late last night helping, you know, somebody do something. It's, yeah, take a nap. That would be good for your body. So this voice is right sometimes, and that's what gets us confused. Because we're like, well, that one time he told me to eat a piece of cake, that seemed like the right thing to do. That one time he told me to be spontaneous and be creative and whatever. So sometimes we get confused because that voice isn't always wrong. But the, the deal is this, is, this is, this is the voice that isn't always thinking about our future. So even when he's right, he's wrong. How many of your phones, uh, a lot of you have iPhones in here, how many of your phones have updated recently? You know, I mean, most of us get those uh, scam calls, right? You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, oh, I don't recognize this number, and I was telling you a few months ago that I answer those phone calls. I like that. Like, who knows? New friend. And now they'll give you the scam likely um, caller ID, and uh, uh, somebody was telling me that they're like, I don't know Miss Likely, so I'm not answering that call. You know, like, well, what kind of name is that? Why, anybody, anybody in here, just out of experiment, anybody ever answer the scam likely call? A couple you have? Okay. That's, that's this voice telling you to answer that call. All right. 
most of us are like, no, it kind of came clearly labeled. Why would I answer that call? Why would I listen to that voice? Because that person does not have my best interests at heart. Every time this voice speaks, even when they're right, scam likely. Because they do not really care about your long-term future. They don't care about your Bible reading. They don't care about your prayer life. They don't care about your discipleship. It's a scam. And every time we listen to that voice, there's a scam happening. There's something happening that is not really caring about our future and our best interests. And so this is, this voice, the scriptures call the self. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, deny yourself. He was saying, deny that voice. Because there is also a voice in you that says, I want to follow Jesus. I want to do the hard thing. I want to try. I want to, I have these goals. But deny this voice. Over and over in scripture, there's this voice that says, that says, just, you know, act quickly, say quickly, make choices that make you feel good. And that's the voice Jesus calls us to deny. You guys can have a seat. I just wanted to have you up here. That is the easiest round of applause you will ever receive in your life. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. Paul's writing to this group of people. He's writing to a culture that is just astoundingly similar to our culture. And he's saying this culture exists and they have followed that second voice. They keep following that second voice. They keep saying, do what feels good. And this is an ancient culture, and it sounds so similar to ours. And he's saying this this culture actually encourages that second voice. And they say, tune into that second voice. And there are people who keep following that voice until they fall off a cliff. This is the voice that says, follow your desires, indulge yourself. And, And eventually, the more you listen to this voice, you get turned upside down, and you cannot tell which way is up. And we live in a culture that is confidently asserting morality and rightness and truth, and they are completely confused. That's, they've listened to this voice. And Paul writes this. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I tell you this. I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They've gotten turned upside down and they can't figure out which way is up. They have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality, to desire, to indulgence in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. He goes, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him. This battle exists in you, but that's not the way you learned to live. Stop listening to that message. You were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, taught with regard to, excuse me, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. You've got to ignore that call, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to tune out that voice. And that is the constant daily battle that we have. This afternoon, you're going to hear both those voices in your head. And you're going to think, hmm, I don't know, this one sounds really appealing. Scam likely. Scam likely. Self-control is essentially this. It is recognizing that that eternal internal conflict is happening. It's taking place in you. It's recognizing that. That just because you desire it does not mean that it is a good thing for you. That is, rec- that is the beginning of self-control. And it's recognizing and knowing which voice cares about you, cares about your long-term future, cares about protecting what's inside when the walls are broken down. 
And that voice, it's consistently following what matters most. It doesn't ever mean that we don't accidentally get off track, but it's getting back on track. It's getting back and doing the right thing. It's saying it's recognizing it when we're going the wrong way. Uh, James Clear, one of those books uh, on there, wrote a book called Atomic Habits, and he had this quote where he said, every action you take is a step toward the type of person you are becoming. And it's a good, good quote, but I, I think it falls short of what Scripture would say. Scripture would indicate that every action you take is a step toward the type of person you're becoming. Because everything that you do through a thousand tiny choices that you make every day, you're leaning into one voice or the other voice. You're either following Jesus or you're following something else every day. And you're, you're shaping who you are becoming. You are building the trellis upon which your life will grow. And the key component is do we have self-control to consistently follow that voice? I want to wrap up by saying this. This is incredibly important that I say this because up till this point, it's going to sound to some of you like you're saying, well, Patrick, if I just grit my teeth and I just try to do the right thing and I just, you know, grind it out, I can just like, I can control myself. And that's not the message of scripture. That's not the message of scripture. Just do the hard thing. That's not the message. The most powerful and familiar reference we have to self-control in Scripture is one that you're familiar with, and it's out of the book of Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is trying to encapsulate the ideas of someone who is thriving in the Spirit, someone who has a trellis of life around the Spirit, and he gives this list, and of course the top of the list is love and then joy, all these things that anybody wants. Everybody wants these things. Everybody wants more of these things. I've never met someone who was like, I'm pretty full on the joy quota in my life. I really don't need any more joy. I'm good with peace. Nobody, nobody like feels like I've got it all and it's good. Nobody's there yet. But then at the bottom of that list, and some scholars, uh, some academics claim it's at the bottom because it's foundational to the others, and I don't know if that's true or not, although I do know that self-control is the one component that aids all these others. It's the, it's the trellis, it's the structure, it's the habit upon which these other virtues grow. Self-control may be at times about just gritting your teeth and just doing the thing, just doing the hard thing, but before it is about that, first, and this is what I want you to hear more than anything else, is that self-control is about cultivating a life in the Spirit. It's about creating a structure and a framework in your life that allows the Spirit to thrive and to work in you and produce those qualities that you so desperately want. Uh, David Brooks has written a couple of really good books about character and character development. He wrote in this book called The Road to Character uh, this quote that I, was, I happened to be reading this week separate from any of the preparation, and I was like, oh man, he nailed it. He wrote that the ultimate conquest of the self is not won by self-discipline, but by establishing communion with God. That's so true. It's not won simply by just like gritting your teeth and getting it done. It's by establishing communion with God, creating the trellis around which God can produce these qualities in our life. That's what it's about. And so as we explore this series, we're going to explore how we manage our time, relationships, technology. We're going to explore those things. But the crucial, foundational, fundamental habit is one of self-control. That, that scripture, secular research, everything says you can grow. If you feel like you lack self-control, you can grow it. You can rebuild those walls that protect the most important things in your life.